had to do was unite what I estimated were about 80 million people in the United States who believed the way that we did, that this was this was medical tyranny and uh, there wasn't really a pandemic and all this sort of thing, who, were, who wanted freedom from this type of thing. We had to find a way to get those people together. And so that is how Make Americans Free Again started. But I will tell you this, if you wanted a partner in the destruction of humanity as we know it, there's no better partner than the Chinese government because they have no regard for humanity or for human life which is why they do live, you know, organ harvesting from live people. I mean, they're they ruthless people. I mean, seriously, if you've been in my shoes investigating this for decades, um, well, three decades, you, you look at this and you say, well, it's just another day at the office for the medical profession. Carbon 60 or C60 first gained notoriety back in 2012 from a study that increased the lifespan of rats by a whopping 90%. Since that breakthrough study, scientists have conducted thousands of studies showing C60 not only has a very real potential extending lifespan, but also has been shown to be better than any other substance ever studied to reduce inflammation, eliminate free radicals, provide powerful antioxidants, and more. After the famous rat study, scientists at Live Longer Labs realized a human, not industrial formula needed to be made. That's when they set out to be the first lab in the world to focus on what is best for human consumption of C60. This led Live Longer Labs to pioneer a high quality, 99.9% .9 pure C60 refined without solvents in oils that work best for humans, and that is black seed oil. Look it up yourself. Black seed oil has been known as a universal healer for millennia, and more modern studies confirmed its benefits as a potent antioxidant and for anti-inflammation. Simply, it's not like other oils it's better. To try this amazing product, go to sarahwestall.com under shop. Remember, members of Ebeneer save 10% and all listeners can save 5% using the coupon found at sarahwestall.com under shop. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have Pam Popper coming to the program. She is, she's a dynamite lady. She has, uh, you got to hear everything she has going on, but she has been in this medical tyranny environment for decades and she has information I have not heard elsewhere and I think you are going to get a lot out of this. She also has very promising solutions that are uplifting and that you can get involved with, that everyone can get involved with and make a difference and turn this around. And so you're going to learn a lot from her today, and you're also going to learn how you can help and get involved and make your life better. And I'm going to be interviewing a couple other, or at least one other person from her organization from a different perspective. You know, they're partnering with her. So we're going to start moving in this direction on how we can work together, unite from all political parties. So politics isn't part of it. And we are going to make our world better. And she's she's just got such great solutions and they're working with tens of thousands of people and this is this is happening and it's really very promising so before i get in that i want to remind you to please go to my website join my newsletter look at my affiliates there's coupon codes for many of them if you go to if you sign up for avenir you can save 10 percent on c60 i also have a 20 percent vip savings now for the Defy Time telomere lengthener, and now it's like twice as powerful. So uh, they have a product that's twice as powerful, and you take it and you get a lot more uh, effectiveness when it's twice as powerful. I, I make sure my parents take it 
all the time. I mean, that's a staple for them. And I just, and the re- how I pay for it is I get other people to use it. And then I just, I get product for my parents by selling it. That's what I'm doing. So just some total disclosure, but that I, I really want my parents on it because I want them to stick around. They're in their early eighties. It's really helped my dad and his cognitive ability that and C60. And I just, I want them to stick around. So, and also share this interview far and wide. It's, it's an important one. I have a lot of important interviews, but this one I think is something that can really help people grow spiritually and feel better and feel better about what's going on in, in the, in our country and the world. They make a difference because if you're not, getting actively engaged in making things better. You feel like a victim and you feel overwhelmed and that the world's coming to an end. Oh my God. But if you get involved and engaged with people, like-minded people who are there to help and you want to help the whole world, your whole paradigm, everything feels better. And that's why this is such a great opportunity for everyone. So the links will be below on how you can get engaged, how you can work with this, her organization and maybe develop your own organization locally. Hi, Pam and Mike. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I've been hearing about you for a long, long time. And yeah, you know, I'm... Go ahead. Go ahead, Pam. I was going to say, I put you on the list of people that sometime I wanted to connect with. So when Mike brought this up, I thought, okay, I'm, once again, you put something out there and you end up getting it, right? That's so, right. Thank you. Well, thank you. I hope it's good stuff that you hear. You never know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> it's all good. And I think you're a great investigative journalist and, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here, Sarah. Well, excellent. Yeah, I do my best. Although in the, these days and times, it's very hard to to do what I'm doing and get it right and um, not make everybody mad at the same time <laughs> on all sides. You're just like, wow. Okay, but let's get started because yeah. you... There are a couple ways of looking at it. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say there's a couple ways of looking at it. I think some days if I don't make somebody mad during the course of the day, then maybe I didn't justify my existence. We're supposed to make people angry in this space a little bit. Right? <laughs> I think maybe you're right, right? And I think, I think bringing new information to somebody, you're the messenger of new information that's pretty traumatic. The anger gets directed at you, right? I mean, it is what it is. And so... It's like a lot of times you're just a message. I'm trying, (laughs) but they don't, they'll get mad at a different opinion as well. And that's okay. It is what it is, but okay. But you guys have amazing things going on and I am really impressed with what I've heard that you're doing. And, you know, I've always say people need to get out there and do and really help. We need everybody as many people as possible. Get out there wherever you are, wherever you are in this understanding and wherever do what you can to help this cause because we need to change the culture and get everyone involved. And that's what you're doing. So I want, and and in a big way, so can you talk about at a high level what you're doing and then we'll dive into it more? Okay, well, um, just by way of background, um, I opened a healthcare company 27 years ago and um, it took five days for the state of Ohio to open an investigation of me. And uh, five days. And so I'm writing a book, another book, and and the theme of this book is going to be nothing new, just bigger. All this stuff has been going on for a long time. It's just been on a lower scale, right? So I spent hundred and tens of thousands of dollars, about $160,000, and I won. 
And um, and that was my introduction to medical tyranny, trying to control the message and censor who gets to talk about things and all that sort of thing. And um, the niche that my company exists in is informed medical decision-making. So I've spent 27 years writing a couple thousand referenced articles and creating 3,600 hours of programming that help people to make informed decisions about healthcare. And in the process of doing that and working on some documentaries and writing some books, I really discovered how this partnership between medicine and the government is horrific. It's been going on for a long time, as I said before, and how much bad healthcare results from um, controlling the message, uh, the power of drug companies, partnering with government and all this sort of thing. So again, when this happened, I wasn't really surprised about it. I knew what it was right away. And I put a video out about it like March 10th. And I said, it's the fake pandemic. They did it in 2009. Uh, this is just a bigger version of it. China's behind it. And the end game is going to be forced vaccination. And gosh, if there's ever a time I wanted to be wrong, this would have been it, you know? So um, as I looked at this whole thing and we were deciding uh, here at my company, are we going to do something about it? Because we felt pretty compelled that we should. We started looking at what, what is the opening here? Where, where, what could you do that would really make a difference? And uh, we felt that the one functioning branch of government remaining was the court system. And it has its problems, but it is still functioning. And that's proven to be true. Uh, and we also felt that what we had to do was unite what I estimated were about 80 million people in the United States who believed the way that we did, that this was this was medical tyranny and uh, there wasn't really a pandemic and all this sort of thing, who, were, who wanted freedom from this type of thing. We had to find a way to get those people together. And so that is how Make Americans Free Again started. It was a response to, I guess I felt like I've been training for this my whole professional career. And you hear a lot of people saying that, like, you know, I felt like I just had to step up because, you know, I'd been trained for this. And and um, we felt that we had some insight into what was going on and we could potentially unite tens of millions of people. And if nothing else, we could mount a great resistance if they really tried to do this on an ongoing basis. And um, we could file actions in court, but it turned into a whole lot more than that over time. So that's the thumbnail sketch of what how this all started. Well, let me ask you a couple questions because you said a lot there. And <laughs> I first want to start with China versus the World Economic Forum and NATO and UN and that. that. Um, we know that China is heavily involved, but how much are they leading versus following or a partnership with the with the World Economic Forum and, you know, the WHO World Health Organization and such? Because I'm seeing a consolidation of actions that are um, taking away our, you know, our medical freedom, our sovereignty for our bodies. But I'm also seeing that on a military level and on a finance level and on a lot of other areas. So I'm wondering how much, and, and it seems to be coming from the World Economic Forum or whoever they're working with. So how much mm -hmm. have you, when you looked at this, how much is it really directed by China or is it directed in another way and China's being used or what? I, I'm trying to figure that out, how much China is the a partner versus a leader in this. Um, that's a complicated question, and I'll try to give a short answer to it. Um, I think that the connection between China and the um, and uh, the World Health Organization very tight. Tedros is a good friend of the wife of, Pres of uh, President Xi, 
of China. Uh, I wrote about this in my book, COVID Operation. I was the first to publish a book, by the way, in August of 2020. We sent it to the publisher outlining all of this, including a whole chapter on the lab origin with 49 references. We, yeah, yeah. We like to call it. But, um, but anyway, there's a very tight connection there. Um, and the Gates Foundation is also very tied to China and integral in getting Tedros as head of the World um, Health Organization. He had no, He was not a physician. He is not a physician. And his track record in Ethiopia when he was the health minister there was horrific. I mean, two million people who belong to an ethnic group he despised disappeared from the census. Nobody's ever been able to explain that. And um, he- Hold on the- a second, two million from, okay. Two million, what ethnic group and where did they disappear from? In in Ethiopia, two million people who belong to an ethnic group he despised just disappeared from the census and nobody ever figured out what happened. He had spent enormous amounts of money that had been given to him as health minister in Ethiopia on building clinics. And all this stuff was sanitized from the internet, but I managed to find it back in 2020. Uh, and I have the documents to back it up, people would send, these organizations would send somebody to Ethiopia to look at these um, health clinics and um, they didn't have electricity and they didn't have running water. So where was all this money going, right? It certainly wasn't to put up first-class health clinics, which was what the expectation was from the grants. Um, And uh, he was, there was a big to-do about um, getting um, uh, foreign nationals out of the Middle East when conflicts arose. And Ethiopia was the only country on the planet that just left people there to get killed. So this guy has a long track record of complete irresponsibility and unaccountability. Um, He had no qualifications whatsoever for becoming head of the World Health Organization. Um, So the Gates Foundation, Bill Gates was very involved in making sure that he got that position. Nobody wanted him there. So they forced him in. And this this will take your breath away when I tell you this. Um, He reaffirmed Xi's wife as the um, as the member of the it's called, I think, the World Health Organization Good Ambassadors Club or something like that. It's got a real rosy title like, oh, people are interested. Yeah. Yeah, well, she's a member of the Chinese military. She's a general in the Chinese military, she's wife. And uh, we have a video of her singing while they were slaughtering people at uh, Tiananmen Square. She's described as an opera singer on the WHO website when she was uh, in that position. So Tedros's first nominee to join her was Robert Mugabe, who slaughtered millions of people when he led a country in Africa. I mean, you couldn't make something like this up, right? So I think all this to say, this connection between the World Health Organization and China is very, very tight. And in fact, um, the World Health Organization and China have collaborated to um, give the impression that China was doing everything it should do. I've got a great timeline in the book that describes like China would do something and the World Health Organization would say, this should be the policy for the whole world. Severe lockdowns, everybody walking around in hazmat suits and masks. And I think that the people at the WHO were well aware uh, of what was going on. Um, and um, and President Xi worked through them, or he's premier. I don't, I never know what to call him, but whoever he is who's in charge of, of the Chinese Communist Party. So I think that um, that connection is very, very tight. It's a little murkier when you get to the World Economic Forum. In, in other words, is Klaus Schwab. Um, just sort of latching on to this thing that happened and, you know, never let a good opportunity go to waste, right? This whole thing is unfolded. 
your goal all along has been to transform society and you think you're king of the universe and you should be able to do that. And so here's your opportunity. I don't know. I, I don't know about that, um, but I, I have a suspicion. My instincts are usually pretty good about this stuff, that there aren't meetings going on with Klaus Schwab and Ted Rose and and China and uh, the president of China, where they're where they're saying, you know, let's let's get together and plan something for the world. I don't think that that type of coll formal collaboration is going on. Well, when you went to the World Economic Forum, they had uh, the Great Reset, and they had COVID as a start, and they had two hundred levels of how they're going to transform society based on COVID, and that's rolling out right now. Agenda twenty one, which is the agenda for the twenty first century, not you know, year 2021. And then they, they've decided to accelerate it. And the UN has been acting in barbaric ways, just like you were talking about where, you know, 2 million people would be slaughtered. They would go into places where, you know, they talk like they're all about peace and prosperity for everybody, but they would go into areas where they wanted the resources and just slaughter villages and stuff. So there's a lot mm -hmm. of proof of that, which is incredible. And so people don't realize the kind of evil at these international level that we're dealing with. And so I'm wondering, you know, with NATO expanding, it seems like they're building towards a world war against China, the East against the West. But so often when there's resets, these are manufactured every single time in the past, they've been manufactured from both sides. And it's a way mm -hmm. to expand the the world agenda every time we're one, one we're we're two that's each time they've expanded their footprint and they use these wars to do these resets so i'm wondering you know how much of this is tied in or you think they're just taking advantage of the current situation well i think that that a lot of people are um in in key positions and a lot of international organizations have had the same idea for years. They're fascinated with communism and Marxism. I think Justin Trudeau's comment one day, um, and I don't know what the forum was, but this video you can still find. Um, somebody asked him, what do you think is the best government in the world? Which one? He said, China. He said, uh, you just have to kind of admire a, a government where you don't have to go through all this. I'm paraphrasing here. All yeah. this silly negotiating with everybody. And just do something that you know is right for the people and not have to bother with consent of the people. And again, I'm paraphrasing there, right? Yeah, so I remember that. If you have a whole lot of people, yeah. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll just take a step to the side right now and tell you that, that we are using this as an opportunity to do something that we've always wanted to do, which is reform the licensure laws in the country, take down the cabal, set up an alternative healthcare system. So so I didn't orchestrate this at all, right? I'm just responding to it, but I'm I'm fine with it to take advantage of the opportunity that's presented itself to do something we think that is for good. I can prove that it's for the good of people, right? We're going to give them yes. more choice. We're going to dismantle the, the licensure board. So my point is that the UN made their intentions really clear. Schwab has made his intentions really clear. Um, I don't know that, like, like I said, I'm not sure that these people have been sitting around the board table um, saying, you know, this is how we're going to do it as much as this is what we wanted to do. When the opportunity presents itself, we're going to jump in and do it. And I think they all did. And it doesn't make what's going on any less scary. In other words, the fact that they may not have plotted along with some people who we know did plot COVID-19 doesn't mean that they're any less culpable 
for doing what they're doing right now, which is terrible things to people and an attempt to take over the world um, because they are they're obnoxious people who think they know what's best for everybody. It's the most obnoxious form of elitism. I'm smarter than everybody, so I'm going to decide what's good for everybody. But meanwhile, they're killing millions. Of, they'll, they have no problem killing millions of people while we know what's best for everybody, except maybe the people you killed. It's like, yeah, well, maybe right. not. It wasn't good for them. But right. well, what? that was Hitler's thing. We're killing. We're going to kill people because we know what's best for society. We know what the we we know what is best for our country. And getting rid of inconvenient people has been going on since the beginning of humanity. It just gets to be a bigger scale as the world becomes a bigger place. And it's now it's rearing its ugly head in a dominant way. They have they've built up power. I've heard reports coming out of China, and I just want to hear if you've heard this, that during their lockdowns, you know, they had where they locked down 20 million people and so forth. They were using those lockdown opportunities to get rid of anybody who was not aligned with the Chinese Communist Party and to also use the streets and so forth to build up for war. Is that true? Do you know? It's a rumor, um, but I will tell you this, if you wanted a partner in the destruction of humanity as we know it, there's no better partner than the Chinese government because they have no regard for humanity or for human life, which is why they do live you know, organ harvesting from live people. I mean, they, they're ruthless people. Um, there's another thought, uh, and I also wouldn't put this past them, that um, one of the things that they're doing is, you know, this one child policy that they had for a long time is now turning around to, to bite them because there's nobody to take care of the growing elderly population. Oh. You know, it's, it, it, that's beginning to happen here in the United States, too. Our birth rate's dropping, and that's going to be a problem. So the Chinese are thinking of mandating you have to have three children now. we got to solve this problem. So I don't know how they're going to make women have babies, but they have a way of making people do anything that they want them to do. So there, there is, a, a, and again, I wouldn't put it past them that what they were trying to do was get rid of older, more vulnerable people. Um, and, and and we know that that's a vulnerable population to lockdowns because look what happened here. I mean, in Canada- well, they did that they, on purpose. I mean, here oh, we, we did the nursing home thing. And on, for some reason, well, like that, Minnesota, I was going to say, for some reason, Minnesota, the governor here has got a total pass, even though percentage-wise, we had the most deaths in nursing homes than any state in the union. And he gets a complete pass. But anyways, keep going. Well, I was going to say that in Canada, just to let you know the impact of this lockdown on older people, in Canada, assisted suicide is permitted. And I covered this in a couple of my videos that they were, um, there were senior citizens in Canada who were opting for assisted suicide rather than stay locked down. And there was one story, I just, I couldn't believe this. This woman That's went so home. That's so sad. Me. That's, oh, that guy, I was covering that. I was covering that at the time, and I know I'm need to interview you. People get mad when I talk when I'm interviewing. I want to hear her talk, not you. Well, come on. I want to hear you. I don't care. It is what it is. I have to say it. But um, no, I remember I was covering it at the time. I was calling all the the press, the mainstream press, with these these nursing home um, elderlies and new nursing homes. And it was breaking my heart because I knew this was going on as it was going on and I couldn't stop it. I couldn't do anything about it. And mm -hmm. I was calling everyone to cover this as much as possible, but it it was, it's for me, it's been, it's like watching a slow moving train wreck because each step of the way I, I've been seeing it before it happened and I can't do anything. I mean, maybe I've saw, I've saved some people, I don't know, but 
And and so to hear that these people would rather be use assisted suicide than be lonely in their cell in a nursing home is really sad. Yeah. So I think the Chinese wanted to do that. And I think they also, um, they have a big problem in China right now. Uh, it's always been a problem where you have a small number of people who are um, high up in the communist uh, party who are trying to control a billion, 400 million people. This is always a dicey balancing act, all right? And um, the world is becoming a smaller place and you can only censor so much. I mean, we know that there's a lot of censorship going on in the United States, but the word's still getting out to lots of people about what's going great. on. Yeah, so the Chinese are having bigger and bigger problems uh, mounting all the time, controlling their population. And rowdy, a billion rowdy people with 300,000 elite members of the of the Chinese Communist Party, that's a ratio nobody wants to deal with. So showing your power, look what we can do to you. And we have done it to you and we'll do it to you again. That's that's another thing I think is going on over there. It was less to do with we're going to get to zero COVID than let us show you how powerful we are so you know to stay in your lane. Yeah, well, Kiss was it Kissinger? Maybe it was Rockefeller. I thought it was Kissinger that said it's easier to kill a million people than to control a million people as mm -hmm. the population grows. I'm sure a lot of people have said that, actually. Yeah. Well, they've, whoever originally <laughs> said that, and then they've all been repeating it, and they were like, oh, yeah, that's true. But, yeah, I, I, I think they, you know, instead of using human creativity and the ideas to, you know, to deal with, you know, whether it's resources or, or pollution or whatever, they just want to kill people. And mm -hmm. part of me thinks that the carbon, you know, because that's all BS, CO2, we breathe out CO2, so they want to reduce CO2. I really think that their messaging is they just want to get rid of people who are breathing out CO2. I've just thought about that recently. That that's probably the message that they're sending. Well, that's part of it. But, you know, a lot of this, when you get to the, the slaughtering of people and, you know, there's a thought that the vaccines were a planned killing program, depopulation. I have another theory about it, and that is that the medical profession has been careening toward, it's been involved in irresponsible actions for um, decades, for over 100 years, and it has tolerated intolerable things. It's just nobody knew about it. Again, what's happening now is just bigger, not new. And I want to give you an example, a couple of examples, actually. Um, so everybody thinks that we got rid of all the barbaric stuff when we stopped doing, you know, bloodletting and, you know, in the Middle Ages, we stopped doing some of this stuff, right? Um, this story happened when uh, in, in uh, the mid last century, when um, uh, the, the thought was that medical training needed to change and we needed residency programs for doctors. In other words, we're not going to let them just graduate from medical school and go back home and practice on humans. So that's a good idea. Yeah. So Johns Hopkins University had the first surgical residency program. And the person in charge of it was a doctor by the name of Halstead. He had studied in Europe and he was a very, very smart guy. Problem was he was a raging drug addict. And one time in a drug fueled episode, he took out his mother's gallbladder on the dining room table. This is a problem. I think most people would think, right? He's in charge of wow. surgical residency at Johns Hopkins. The residents reported that he often showed up to conduct surgery for the residents, and his, he was in such a terrible state that the residents had to do surgery without supervision on patients who were anesthetized. Wow. He was hospitalized six times. I haven't gotten to the best part yet. He was hospitalized six times for addiction it never took. All right, so he was the inventor 
of the Halstead radical mastectomy. And he made an observation. And the fact that he was making observations is better than what happens in most medical facilities, but he would observe that you take out the breast and then the cancer recurs right around the edge where you took out the breast. So his thought was take more and take more. He got to the place where he was taking out shoulders and rib cages. He disfigured a half a million women this way. And it went on for a long, long time, all while high on drugs, all right? And the only thing that ended it was when George Crile at the Cleveland Clinic said, "This, there's got to, we got to have some evidence as to whether or not this is actually saving women, which it wasn't. Halstead could never produce any evidence that this was the case. Um, and uh, he, through incredible effort and political influence, managed to get the first trial to look at, did this radical Halstead mastectomy where you take out 25% of a woman's body, save her life? And the answer was no, and we stopped doing that. So when, so I, I don't know, I'm not ruling out the fact that you've got a bunch of people who got together and said, let's depopulate the planet. But the other side of it is the history of medicine is filled with drug companies and surgical centers and the medical cabal and the government all getting together and doing terrible things to people. And I'll give you one more example in the area of breast cancer that'll just take your breath away. Well, can, what one, well, I, I want to hear that, but do you think that this Halstead character, he just had too much power and people were afraid to go against him? Or, I mean, I think we just tolerate it. Medical, the medical profession has tolerated bad things happening and watched it happen for a long time. So when they're killing people in the hospital with remdesivir and vents, I mean, again, I'm appalled by it, but I wasn't shocked by it. I mean, seriously, if you've been in my shoes investigating this for decades, um, well, three decades, you, you look at this and you say, well, it's just another day at the office for the medical profession. Wow. Well, they were paying people to give them remdesivir. It was a whole pay scheme. Oh, it's, and, all, it's always and, a pay scheme. Yeah, it's always. Well, you know, and it, I, we just said hospitals were death fields and you kind of saw that from the beginning. OK, t tell us your next story. Yeah. So so now let's let's stay on the theme of breast cancer. So um, I think this was in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, a doctor in South Africa published a study uh, concerning chemotherapy. And as you know, chemotherapy is very toxic and there's a limit to how much you can give it, but the different chemotherapy drugs have different side effect profiles. So this doctor had a unique idea, supposedly, that maybe if you gave combination chemotherapy, um, you, could, um, uh, you could reduce the side effects and give more chemotherapy. And so his idea was we're going to harvest bone marrow from the woman before we start this really onslaught of chemotherapy, bring her to the brink of death, then re with chemotherapy and eradicate every cancer cell in the body. And then um, a bone marrow transplant from her own marrow. And then supposedly this would lead to cure. And he said in his article that he published in a peer reviewed journal, that's a term we need to start thinking about too, um, that uh, he was successful in doing this. So. It started here in the United States. Duke University was one of the uh, places that was the epicenter for this. Um, uh, and they started doing this treatment. And of course, nobody's keeping track of, is anybody really living longer? I mean, this idea of data gathering before you do it to everybody, that's crazy talk in the healthcare field. You just jump right in there, put the remdesivir in them and put the vents on. There, there's no accountability 
So unless you unless you're a small little outfit trying to do something, right? Well, I mean, then, that, you, then you better get it right. And even yeah. if you have it right, you're not going to be put out of business because it's not usually very profitable. So anyway, long story short, it, it got to the place where women became convinced. They've always used consumers to advocate. Women became convinced that they should be entitled to this very expensive treatment that insurance companies didn't want to pay for. And people villainize the insurance companies. And I'm actually on the insurance company sides a lot of times. They are asked to pay for things that they know are, are are harmful and ridiculously expensive. So women started suing insurance companies and the courts ordered the insurance companies to pay for this treatment, all right? Well, here's the bottom line. The guy in South Africa made up his data. He'd never saved anybody's life, all right? I'm, I'm doing, giving you the short version. The long version of the story will be in my book. But he never saved anybody's life. And through this, and women sued for the right to get this deadly treatment. And by the time it was all sorted out, there were probably nine to 10,000 deaths and 30,000 women permanently disabled from the toxic treatment from multiple chemotherapy drugs administered at the maximum dose that could be tolerated. And so you, you look at that and you say, and, and again, I'm not ruling out that Pfizer is interested in killing people, but Pfizer is not doing anything different that was than, than what was done you know, a few decades ago with Halstead and with um, with this uh, chemotherapy and bone marrow transplant uh, nonsense. It's the same thing in the quest to make money and in the quest to get published and the quest for recognition and latching onto, doctors are notorious for latching onto the shiny new thing, whether it's evidence-based or not. And by the way, I teach a research and writing course for health professionals and a lot of doctors take it. They're the worst researchers ever. They know it when they, the ones that show up in my class know it, they're there to fix it. The rest of them out there arrogantly um, continue to promote whatever, whatever. If the if I I have said for a long time, you know that uh, that there is almost nothing that drug companies and health institutions could cook up that they'd want to do that doctors wouldn't jump right on and do because they were told to or because it was profitable.